Our scripture reading this evening is found in Jonah 3:10 through 4:11. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I pray thee, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and repentest of evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life from me, I beseech thee, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm which attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a sultry east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, should, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do, do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The word of the Lord. Um, I, um, I, I, this is, uh, this is the end of the story. I, I figured everyone, I mean, mostly, you know, you know, I figured you know the end of the story, or the beginning of the story, you know that, and so I thought, at that and then I'll just tell this part here because this is a, you know, everybody knows the part where Jonah is swallowed by the great fish. I have to say great fish, let me tell you. I have to say great fish because of this guy, Mike Vanderveen, a 14-year-old uh, evangelical whom I spent some time with, uh, a summer with actually, as a 14-year-old proselytizer myself uh, with the Teen Missions International Organization. Yes, uh, Mike Vanderveen, uh, this, uh, Mike Vanderveen's second favorite thing to do was to point out little facts about the Bible that you thought you knew, but actually you were wrong. Among his favorites was, uh, Jonah was never in the belly of a whale, he would say. And the rest of the teen missionaries on our teen missionary team they never caught on to this thing he liked to do. They never caught on to his game, and they would, like, jump in, neophyte exegetes all, 
are you saying, are you saying that you don't believe in miracles, that God could call on a whale to swallow Jonah and spit him out on the shore three days later? Because that is what the Bible says. Mike Vanderveen would smile, a not completely kind smile, and say, I believe God could do that if God wanted, but God just didn't happen to choose to have Jonah swallowed by a whale. At that point, the teen missionaries would simultaneously reach into their pockets for the Bibles. Some of them were cut short, only having the New Testament in trouser. Their thumbs wide going, moving frantically, trying to find a, a three-page book in a 1,148 thin skin book of their paper pope. It was some there they knew residing in the vaguely minor prophetish area. And as they thumb, Mike Vanderveen continues, of course, I believe in miracles. I believe very much what the Bible says. I just, it just doesn't say that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. At this, the exegetes look up at him quickly, then briefly, then kick their thumbs into hyperspeed. The first one finding it stands up sharply with the aha finality and says, chapter 1, verse 17, and then seeing the words on the page, says nothing and sits down. Mike Vanderveen helps, quoting from memory, but the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed in the Lord his God, to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. See, it says fish, not a whale. And a whale is not a fish. It is a mammal. Man, that Mike Vanderveen bugged me. So smuggy. His favorite thing, his first favorite thing to do, was to say this phrase that is even more irritating than that's habit. He would say this phrase, and I don't know if it was theologically profound or like, you know, naive denial from an underdeveloped soul. Whatever it was, when something went wrong, or the team, our missionary team, had prayed in team prayer time for something that didn't, and then something that didn't actually happen, say, we all got together and we prayed for a part from our, for our broken down team missionary bus to be delivered a day early so we could get to the missionary in. Or let's say we all got together and we prayed for the oppressive spirit that hovered above our camp in the form of a woodpecker to leave and free us. Um, or um, let's just say that we prayed that the Lord would stay the rain so that we might go out and do our evangelizing. Whenever we had prayed for anything like this or something went wrong and that actually didn't happen, when the oppressive spirit didn't fly away and it didn't stop raining or the part didn't come early, Mark Vanderveen would always say this phrase. Well, praise the Lord anyway. All the time with this, praise the Lord anyway. Man, 
that Mike Vanderveen bugged me. But I must confess I do like saying Mark Vanderveen. Mike Vanderveen, Mike Vanderveen, Mike Vanderveen. Yeah. I suppose that I have to admit that those irritating little things, Mike Vanderveen, Mike Vanderveen, Mike Vanderveen, did clearly stuck with me. I mean, I can't say whale. I have to say large fish, because I know that that is what it says in the Bible. I mean, Mike Vanderveen really gave me my first significant lesson on how to read the Bible, which is to read it seriously, be aware of my own assumptions, and read what is actually written there. And that, for me, to read what is actually written there and be aware of my assumptions, is hard sometimes. Especially with a story like Jonah. I mean, come on, Jonah, it's like such a well-known story. I mean, all I'm just reading through, and I just keep waiting for the part where he's inside the whale with Geppetto, and he lights the match so he can see. It's not in there. And Jonah never once tells a lie in the whole book, if you can believe it. No, it's not there. And, I mean, not a lie in the whole book. And, uh... The book never even makes a passing reference about the size of his nose. It's hard to read what's really there. No lies here. No, Jonah, not only does Jonah not tell a lie, Jonah is actually a really good prophet. He is. According to 2 Kings, he predicted in Yahweh's name the extent to which Jeroboam II would restore the boundaries of the northern kingdom. He says, from the entering of Hamath onto the sea of the plain. Doing this by defeating Israel's enemies. He was a a tried and true, very good prophet. And in this book of Jonah, he gets this word from the Lord. It says, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. Or Jonah flees. Because he knows that the Lord will save, will have mercy on these Ninevites. And he says so quite matter-of-factly. He says, O Lord, is not this what I said would happen in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I know that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and absolute and steadfast love and ready to relent from punishment. See, he's a good prophet. It's not like he gets the word of the Lord wrong. He understands it. He gets it. Um, he, he knows what's going on. The Lord wants him to tell the Ninevites to repent, and he knows that they will, and that God will be gracious and merciful to them, and Jonah does not want that to happen. He hates the Ninevites. He doesn't want to see them saved, loved, or brought in by God. He wants to see them burn in hell, die painful deaths. He's a good prophet, but he's old school. He likes prophesying to the king about how the Lord wants him to kill their enemies and take their land and rain fire down upon them. He doesn't want to hear about God loving God's enemies. And these weren't just any old enemies. These were the Assyrians. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, Israel's traditional long-time enemy and eventual conquerors, actually. Now, this city, Nineveh, with a population of 120,000 people at the time, 
Um, some classical accounts say that it was the largest city in the world in its day, really. Nineveh, Nineveh which is, by the way, is today present Mosul uh, in northern Iraq. And today that population there is 1.8 million. It's the second largest city in Iraq. And it's, um, in the last half of the 20th century, it was an international city, still producing the traditional products that it's known for, marble and muslin, uh, material named for the city where it was created. Also, it's uh, thrived as an academic center. The University of Mosul is one of the largest educational and research centers in Iraq and the whole Middle East. But way back then, way back then, the text says that Nineveh, because of its, its, its pagan sinfulness, it was legendary. And so was its cruelty, legendary. The text says, it was the people which scorched its enemies alive to decorate its walls and pyramids with their skin. Jonah just did not want to see this repentance thing and forgiveness thing happen for the Ninevites. So he left. He got out of there. He fled. In fact, he fled about 750 miles in the opposite direction of Nineveh, which is east of Palestine, whereas Tarshish, where he fled to, is west, like southern Spain. But come on. I mean, really. Think, just think of the enormity of what God is asking him to do. Think of the the difficulty of what Yahweh is asking Jonah to do. But Jonah was not just fleeing an unpleasant calling. No, he was fleeing from the Lord, a fact which he freely confesses to the sailors on board the ship that he had hopped. And the thing is, when he flees the Lord, the Lord goes after him. The Lord doesn't just get another prophet. The Lord just doesn't go to Nineveh on the Lord's own and do the call for repentance himself. The Lord doesn't need Jonah to show mercy to anyone. The Lord is a mercy machine. But no, he wants Jonah to go, particularly. He wants Jonah to go, calls Jonah. But Jonah would rather die, he says. He'd rather die. He says that a lot in this book. He'd rather die. He gets a little overheated, he'd rather die. But no, he'd rather die than go and do this thing, call these people repentance. So he has the sailors throw him overboard, over the ship, so he'll drown. Throw him overboard in the middle of the ocean. It's not like Jonah repented and said, look, I'm really sorry. I ran away from you. I didn't do what you asked. He doesn't repent. He asked the people to throw him over the side so he could die instead of actually having to do what God called him to do. But the Lord, he likes Jonah. He likes Jonah a lot. He has this great fish swallow him up and spit him back on the shore where he started. And the Lord is standing there waiting for him and says to Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I told you. So Jonah goes, not because he's changed his mind, his heart has not turned, he just figures he doesn't have a choice. Once you try drowning yourself in the middle of the ocean and a fish carries you in its belly for three days and deposits you at the feet of the Lord, you just gotta figure 
there's no way you're getting away. When the Lord is after you, you're going to get caught. So he goes and he does what the Lord says to him. Well, kind of. I mean, he doesn't really embrace the whole spirit of it. He does the letter of it. He goes into the middle of the city and says, 40 days and more, Nineveh will be overthrown. He kind of mumbles it, you know? 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites are like, pardon? You know, pardon? The Ninevites say, that was a little quiet. 40 days and more, Nineveh will be overthrown. If you could just speak up, mate. Um, I don't know why the Ninevites have a British accent. Did you? All right, he finally says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. They're all like, what? And the Ninevites say, repent, everybody, we've got to repent, repent. And one, all 120,000 of the Ninevites repent. Now, Jonah, he didn't give them the whole, real wholehearted call to repentance, but he gave them enough. It was enough. And so the text says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah. He became angry. All these 120 people's lives, you know, spare. No fire coming rain down to kill them all. Grace, forgiveness, Jonah does not like it. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my country? This is why I fled Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it your right to be angry? Come on. Then Jonah went out of the city, down to the east of the city, made a booth for himself, sat there, sat under the sun, the shade. And then he goes and sits there, and he goes to this place he finds overlooking the city, just to watch, to see what had happened. Because he's thinking, well, you know, maybe they'll mess up. Maybe it's not too late. Maybe the Lord will still, you know, do something. Something will go wrong, and the Lord, uh, and the Lord will be irritated, and then he'll get to see some of that good, classic slaying of the enemies. But that doesn't happen. Because not only does the Lord like Jonah, the Lord likes the Ninevites. They repent, they're transformed by the mercy of the Lord, they're brought in. But God doesn't leave Jonah alone. He likes Jonah so much that he wants him to understand something. He wants to heal him. It is clear that God didn't just, that it was clear that God didn't, find another prophet or do the calling to repentance thing by God's self, he wanted particularly Jonah to do it. He didn't send Jonah just, just to save the Ninevites. The Lord was hoping that the Ninevites might do something for Jonah as well. Maybe Jonah might repent and turn away from his old school prophet ways, move beyond the desire to deal with Israel's enemy by calling down fire and brimstone to rain from the sky. And while the Old Testament never tells what happened, if indeed Jonah did repent, the book, this Jonah story, is left kind of open-ended here. 
It's almost like someone ripped out the end or lost, the scroll was lost. Or maybe it's just really open-ended on purpose. I don't know. Anyway, no one knows for sure. But I wonder if we might get a hint of what happened from the archaeological evidence of the tradition. In Nineveh, or present-day Mosul, there has been a mosque on the site of the tomb of the prophet Jonah for thousands of years. Jonah was buried in Nineveh. Jonah is revered not only by Christian Jews, but also Muslims as well. There is a mosque there on the site of Jonah's tomb. And the most recent mosque there was built countless centuries ago and is dedicated to meditating on the prophet Jonah's legacy and the questions raised by the story of Jonah, questions about justice and obedience and fairness and tolerance and divine mercy. But Nineveh or Mosul, having repented and been shown mercy, avoiding the destruction of their city so many centuries ago, at the beginning of this century, they're not so lucky. I mean, specifically uh, around uh, 2003, March. Operation Iraqi Freedom commenced raining countless bombs from the sky, sending fire down, targeting the infrastructure. The city fell eventually in April of 2003, but was the site of ongoing street-by-street street fighting for years and years, with attacks by surgeons, U.S. forces, and counterinsurgents. Eventually, the U.S. military was in complete control, and a sort of rebuilding process began. But at this point, most of the most of everything was uh, destroyed. The historical and scientific and intellectual foundations of the city had been decimated. Most of the city's scientists and professors and doctors and engineers and lawyers and clergy from all major religions had either been killed or had fled the city. Professionals, artists, gone. Now, eventually, the U.S. left Mosul. And when they did, repentance didn't seem to be at issue in anyone's hearts or minds on any of the multiple sides. And then three years later, the Islamic states of Iraq and Syria invade northern Iraq, taking Mosul and the historic center of Nineveh. And then, eight weeks ago, they post on YouTube a video of them completely exploding the mosque and tomb of Jonah. Leveled. Look it up. You can watch it. What Jonah only imagined at first that he wanted to see happen to that city, what he first imagined wanted to see that there's fire raining down from the sky and 
and destroying the city, what he wanted, begged God to do to that city, you can watch it happen now on YouTube. You can, as a matter of fact, you can watch over a decade of videos of that city being destroyed, culminating in the complete eradication of that tomb. That tomb that maybe stood for repentance, mercy, forgiveness, tolerance. What the Lord refused to do, man has done gladly and repeatedly. Praise the Lord anyway. <laughs>